We come now to God's Word, brothers and sisters. If you will, take a Bible and open it with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 2 here in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to look at one on the pew in front of you. The text, our main text, will not be up on the screens behind us. I think you'll get most benefit out of it if you follow along with us. We'll be referring back to verses time and time again, even after we read it initially. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, a few weeks ago, I came across an article, a helpful article, on our text today. Uh, And knowing that this sermon was coming up, I filed that one away for future study. But the author of that article, Stephen Wedgworth, uh, started out the article with an introduction that was so appropriate that I'm just completely stealing it. So this is my introduction now, but it's it's really his. Um, But it was just so perfect And it involves a kid's book I've actually read to our kids before when they were real little called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. You ever read this to your little children? It's a little board book for small kids by a guy named Michael Rosin. We're going on a bear hunt. And the refrain that happens over and over again is this. The kids say, we're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. But then they come to obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. That's what drives the story. They come to tall grass. And they come to a deep, cold river. They come to thick, oozy mud. And a big, dark forest. And every time they come to an obstacle, they say the same thing. Can't go over it. We can't go under it. We have to go through it. Well, brothers and sisters, we come to a text today in 1 Corinthians 11... That is honestly a difficult one in a number of ways. But the beauty of preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, is that when you come to a text like this, you can't go around it. You can't avoid it. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You've got to go through it. We've got to go through this text on head coverings today. So what are we going to do with it? Or more importantly, let's ask, what does the Lord have for us today? Because not only do we believe in preaching through books of the Bible, but we believe that all Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's all from Him. Every part of your Bibles is God's Word. And it says all Scripture is profitable because it's God-breathed. Because it's God's Word, it's profitable for us, even in many ways that we might not see initially. And so we come to a text today that you won't hear many preachers just choosing to preach on. Right, But we trust that the Lord knows what we need better than we do. And so let's read our text. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 2, and then we're going to go all the way down to verse 16. This is God's Word through the Apostle Paul. Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. 
For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, there are some hard and important questions that we need to ask about this text this morning. Hard and important. And we need to try to answer them. Number one, should women be wearing head coverings today? Number two, if not, well, doesn't that mean we're just cherry-picking which parts of the Bible we say apply today and which parts do not? And then perhaps the most important question of all, will I be sleeping on the couch after preaching this sermon tonight? Head coverings in the church. Head coverings in the church at Corinth. Let's look at that for a second. Because what we really need to understand, if we want to understand this passage, is the historical background. What were head coverings in that day and time? What were they all about? You see, this is one of those passages in the Bible that we can't really interpret unless we first understand the historical background. For some passages in the Bible, you don't really need to understand the historical background to get what God is really saying to you. There are some passages in the Bible that you come to, and while while it might be nice to understand the historical background, even if you don't, you're fine. You can understand what God is really saying to us. But for this passage, it's essential to understand the historical background, because it just won't make sense without it. In Paul's day, to the church that he's writing to in Corinth, head coverings for women were worn in public to signal that the woman was married, that she was spoken for. And so if a married woman refused to wear a head covering, she was seen as inviting other men to pursue her. And also dishonoring her husband and their marriage. And so wearing a head covering communicated that she was married. And it communicated that she held marriage in high regard. She intended to remain faithful to her husband. All you other men out there, this is, this is off limits. I'm married, I'm taken, and I intend to hold my marriage in high regard and remain faithful to my husband. That's what wearing a head covering in public signified back in Paul's day. Something similar today, while not as obvious, is a wedding band, right? We wear wedding bands in public, and you look at the ring finger of someone, and you can say, oh, that person's taken, right? That person's spoken for. Not as obvious as a head covering, of course, but it's something similar today. Traditional Muslim women today will wear what is known as a hijab, a head covering, when they go out in public. You might not see this very much in Colombia, but you do see this a lot more in bigger cities in America, and especially in the Middle East. It's a form of modesty, but it's also a sign to maintain privacy from males who are not in their immediate family. 
And so head coverings were a cultural expression of that time of a woman who was not available to other men. A cultural expression of that time, just like wedding bands are today. Paul even uses language in the text that tips us off to this being a cultural expression of the time. Look at verse 16. In verse 16 he says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, what he means is to be contentious about this this thing, this practice, he says, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Practice there is a word that could also be translated custom. We have no such custom, no such practice other than this. This is the practice among all the churches of God. And so head coverings were a cultural expression of that time. Now that begs the question though, okay John, well if that was only a cultural expression of that time, well then what's to keep someone from saying, you're just picking and choosing which parts of the Bible apply and which do not, right? You say head coverings no longer apply, but then you turn right around and say the prohibitions on homosexuality still do apply. How can, how can you be talking out both sides of your mouth like that, right? What we've got to understand, brothers and sisters, is the difference between universal principles and cultural applications. Universal principles versus cultural applications. These are all over the Bible. We make decisions like this all the time when we read Scripture. Sometimes we don't even know it. What this means, first and foremost, is this passage is not really a teaching on dress code. It's a teaching on propriety. It's a teaching on modesty. It's a teaching on headship and submission in marriage. It's a teaching on the visible differences between men and women. It's not really a passage about dress code. We've got to understand the difference between a principle and an application. Let me show you some of the principles in our text. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 is a universal principle from the text. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. You see there that he's referring to things that apply to people of all times, in all cultures. Right? The head of Christ is God. That doesn't, that doesn't stop just because you change cultures. Right? That's applicable for everyone all time. Look at verses 7 through 9. This is interesting the way he does this. He says, For a man ought not to cover his head, verse 7, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now watch how he grounds that statement. Watch how he gives reasons for that statement. Verse 8, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. You see how he goes all the way back to creation, all the way back to the garden, when there was only two human beings. And the, the first human beings were being created to show us this isn't just culturally specific. This principle is universal for all time. Verse 9, he, he goes on to say, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Do you remember Genesis 2? And God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will create a helper suitable or fit for him. Now, that wasn't just God saying, We need two people, not one. You know, God created someone, but He created a woman. He created a woman for Adam, right? And so Paul is saying here, all the way back in creation, God was intentional in the order that he made men and women, in the way that he made woman from man and for man. God was intentional, including a deeper meaning than just this is what I'm going to do. If you remember the controversial teaching in 1 Timothy 2, where Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, right? A position that 
is in a lot of heat today in our culture, but Paul says that explicitly in 1 Timothy 2.12, but he grounds it, he grounds it all the way back in creation. He goes all the way back to creation to say, no, this has to do with the differences between men and women. It doesn't have to do with the culture of Timothy's day. It doesn't have to do with the culture of Corinth. It's, it's men and women the way God created them. These are universal principles that have differing applications depending on what culture and time you're in. Do you remember weeks previous in 1 Corinthians in our sermons? Do you remember how much Paul's been talking about food sacrifice to idols? Been talking about that a lot, right? Food sacrifice to idols, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. But those passages, we, we saw when we went through those, those passages are not really about food sacrifice to idols. Food being sacrificed to idols was just an application that Paul used to teach on universal principles like the conscience or laying down your rights for the good of others or refusing to participate in the work of demons, remember? Right? It was just an application that Paul was using to teach principles. So in the same way here, this is not a passage about dress code. Biblical headship for husbands and biblical submission for wives is the principle. And head coverings is the cultural application of that principle. And so, our task then, today, brothers and sisters, is to understand the principle and then to ask ourselves, what is the proper application of this principle today for me? In my own context, in my life. Let's understand the principle and then let's understand in our own context, in Columbia, Kentucky, in 2021, how do I live that out How can I honor God's intention for marriage in my daily life, in public and in private? How can I honor God's pattern for men and women in my daily life, in public and in private? Let's let's ask those questions. Let's take those in turn. First, how can I honor God's pattern for marriage in my daily life? Because this passage is partially about God's pattern for marriage. We see this not only here in this text, but all over the New Testament. In the home, the husband is to be the head of the marriage and the family. The husband is to be the head of the marriage and the family. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, he says, The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And so, ladies, if you're married, your husband is your head. If you intend to get married, your husband should function as your head in that marriage. And God is calling you to submit to his leadership and to honor him as your head in public. Now, does that rub you the wrong way? Does that seem wrong or unfair or demeaning to women? Sometimes the Bible will rub us the wrong way. Sometimes it will. If it never does, I submit that you are not reading the whole thing. Okay? The Bible's going to rub you the wrong way. Why? Because we're human beings. We're not perfect. We're sinful. We live in a culture that is adamantly anti-God, and it has affected us in some ways. So as we read the Scriptures, we will bristle at it some. He's God. Think about this. Right? If he just fits in the little box that you've created, you're, you're not reading the thing. Right? He's God. He's going to brush up against you and make you uncomfortable at times as you read Scripture. But the question is, what do you do when God's Word rubs you the wrong way? What do you do when that happens? 
Do you go with what you want? Or do you go with what God wants? Do you trust that God knows what is best for you and your happiness? Or do you say, uh, no, I think I know what's best for me. I think I know what's best for me better than God does. Perhaps if you bristle at this idea of headship and submission, perhaps a look at what biblical headship actually means will clear things up for you. Because for the husband, it says, the head is Christ. The husband's head is Christ. And so what that means is the husband is to model himself off of how Christ loved the church. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. He starts out and he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, we've heard that before, but watch what he goes on to say. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so how does a husband love and lead his wife? By doing what Christ did for the church. Laying down his life for her. Laying down his life for his wife. Husbands, this means you get up every day And you deny yourself. You die to yourself. You sacrifice your own wants and needs for the good of your wife. This means you take the initiative to lead her and your children spiritually. You take that initiative on yourself, husbands. You don't farm that out to your wife. Now, I I do certain things in in our marriage, but my wife's responsible for the, the spiritual raising of our kids. No, no, no. God gave that to you. You don't give that up. You take that burden on yourself so that your wife does not have to bear it like you are called to bear it. God created you to bear that. You take the burden on yourself to lead your family to Jesus. Don't put that on your wife. You do the hard things that she doesn't want to do so that she doesn't have to do them. You put yourself in harm's way to protect the family, right? That's one that we might understand a little bit better. You die to yourself every day, husband. You die to yourself every day for the good of your wife. Her wants and needs come before yours. Now, wives, would you willingly submit to a husband like that? Absolutely, right? Gladly. Women would gladly submit to leadership like that, men. This idea that biblical headship and submission means the husband is lazy and demanding and the wife is sheepish and has no opinions about anything, that is straight from the devil. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. This idea that a woman has less value than a man if she doesn't have a leadership role is straight from the devil. Leadership roles are just roles, brothers and sisters. They do not convey value. If God created Men and women differently, with different roles that he gave to them. That has nothing to do with how valuable each one is. In fact, that's emphatically not the way the kingdom of God works when you read Scripture. Think about it. When you read the Bible, there are people in humble positions all over the place, according to the world, humble positions that God raises up to a place of prominence. 
The kingdom of God works in the opposite way that the world works. Nowhere in the Bible will you find the principle that those in leadership positions have more value than others. It's just not there. Think of Ephesians 5 that we just read. Is the church less honored or more honored because of the way Christ leads it? Is the church less honored or more honored because of the way it submits to Christ and His leadership? More honored, right? Jesus said, if you want to be great, you must make yourself a servant to all. Jesus said, if you want to be great, you make yourself a servant. You consider the needs and the wants of others as more important than your own. Jesus Himself submitted to the Father while He was on the earth. Did you know that? Jesus Even though He and the Father and the Holy Spirit have been co-equal for all eternity, while Jesus was on this earth, He submitted to the Father. We can see it in the way that He talked, in the way that He acted. He said things like, the Father is greater than I. He actually said that. You can find it in the Bible. He said things like, I do nothing of my own accord. I only do what the Father tells me to do, what He has sent me to do. He defers to God as greater than He as having more authority than he. Does that make Jesus less valuable? Of course not. Of course not. It's a different role, brothers and sisters. Now, there are husbands who abuse this principle of headship and submission. There are. And there are wives who suffer for it, which is why I believe God put in verses 11 and 12. Look at those with me. Verse 11, uh, next page for me, actually. Verse 11, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. He says, no, you you can't consider yourself better if you're a man, right? You depend on women, even for your very existence, right? There's an interdependence between men and women. Do not take this and abuse it. Do not take this idea of headship, husbands, and abuse it and make your wife suffer for it. Husbands, if you read this passage and think, well, that's why I don't have to do the dishes, or that's why I don't have to help with the kids' homework, you've grossly misunderstood headship. Headship is about laying down your rights. Headship is about dying to yourself every day for the good of your wife, putting her needs and wants ahead of your own. But, on the flip side, there are also husbands who are failing to step into God's appointed role for them as spiritual leader and wives who are suffering for that too. There are women who are married who are desperate for their husband to take the role that God has charged him with. They want to be led by their husband. They want to be spiritually led. They want to submit to that kind of leadership, and he is not doing it. He's abdicated his responsibility from the Lord. And so, both husbands and wives must deny themselves and willingly accept the role that God has given them. Both husbands and wives here. It's hard for both. Both husbands and wives must deny themselves and willingly accept the role that God has given them. This is a hard passage, brothers and sisters. But I'm here to tell you, head coverings is not the hard part. The hard part is submitting to God's pattern, which is vastly countercultural in today's day and age. And it's not just God's pattern for headship and submission. The principles here are also about women and men in general. The difference between the genders, men and women. God's pattern for men and women is important to understand and discern from this passage. Look at verses 13 and 14. 
It says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And verse 14 is really what I want to focus in on. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Now, long hair is not what we're here to talk about today. Long hair is the cultural application of the principle. The principle is there's a God-ordained difference between men and women that God intended and that we should celebrate. Because one error of that day was a wife not wearing a head covering, but the other was men rebelling against their maleness and presenting themselves in public like women. They were blurring the line between male and female. And Paul is telling them, and God is telling us, do not do that. I created them different on purpose. Beautiful diversity. But they were rebelling against the way that God made them. Brothers and sisters, this is not a new phenomenon. This did not just start happening in the last few years. This has been going on since the beginning of time. People have been rebelling against the way God created them since the very beginning. Think about Adam and Eve. God creates them and gives them a role. Gives them a role to submit to. And what do they do? They rebel against that role. I do not want to submit to the place that God has put me. I want to be my own authority. We're taking charge. We know what is going to make us most happy. They listened to the voice of the serpent. They rebelled against the way that God created them, the role that he gave to them. Satan himself did the same thing. Satan rebelled against his position. He was not satisfied being just an angel. He had to have more. You follow the storyline of the Bible over and over and over again. People are rebelling against the way that God made them and the role that God gave them. The most fundamental question of your existence is this. Did you hear what I said? The most fundamental question of your existence is this. Will you submit to God's authority or will you rebel against it and try to establish your own? That's for men and women. Will you submit to God's authority or will you rebel against it and try to establish your own? Now, how do we apply the universal principle that there's a God-ordained difference between men and women? How do we apply that universal principle in a culture today that is very, very, very confused about gender? A culture that increasingly wants to do away with gender differences altogether. In our day, verse 14 could say, and I'm not saying we're changing Scripture, you you can never change God's Word, but if Paul was speaking to the, the church at Columbia today or a church in America today, he could say, does not nature itself teach you that gender is given at birth, that it is not chosen? Does not nature itself teach that? Just look at nature. Just think for a second. On March 31st, An article appeared on CNN.com. The article was about the governor of South Dakota issuing a ban on biological males participating in women's sports. Okay, And so they're they're banning biological males from participating in women's sports. They're trying to protect women from the insanity and confusion in gender in our, our culture, in our country today. But in that article, and you can imagine what position CNN took on that, in, in your, that article, the columnist wrote this. He said, he actually wrote this. You can still find it. It is not possible to know a person's gender identity at birth. And someone laughs, and rightfully so, right? That's funny. 
That is, that is ridiculous, but he wrote that. That's in our culture today. People are taking that seriously. This prompted a preacher in Lexington that I know of. I don't know him personally, but I know, him, uh, I know of him. He responded on Twitter saying, call me and I'll explain the criteria to you in about 15 seconds. Right? This is, this is the culture we live in. Very confused. So how do we apply the differences between men and women, the God-ordained differences, how do we apply that principle to our modern culture? Paul could have very well said in verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that it is wrong for a man to wear a dress? Does not nature itself teach you that it is wrong for a woman to dress like a man? Now, of course, cultural norms change depending on the culture you're in and the time that you're in, right? Women don't dress the same today as they did in the the 1400s, right? And if you, you travel over to Africa, the way that women dress there is very different than the way that women dress here, right? There are cultural norms, but there's a big difference between a cultural norm in a culture where men are men and women are women versus a cultural norm coming from a culture trying to claim that there's no such thing as gender differences or that people can choose whatever gender they want to be. And so let's take some practical considerations for a moment. Let's ask ourselves practically, what does this mean for us today? Just a few. Let me give you a few. And these are more practical questions. I'm not going to tell you what you need to do. I'm going to tell you what questions you need to ask yourself. And so married people, we need to ask, how can I honor my marriage when I'm out in public? Right? How can I honor my spouse and honor God's plan for marriage and my individual marriage? How can I honor that when I'm in public? For me, this means wearing my wedding ring. Right? When I go out in public, I'm going to wear this thing so that people can see that I'm not available. Right? Interestingly enough, my wife forgot her wedding band today. But she was making bread. She was making bread, okay? My, my beautiful, lovely, amazing awesome wife, right? Okay. But we wear our wedding bands, right? This means, for me, steering clear of any situation where I might be with a woman alone, or making sure that I never give any woman the impression that I'm available, right? There might be some women that talk to me, and they're like, why is he making such a big deal about the fact that he's married? So it might be annoying, but I'm I'm just trying to leave no doubt, right? This is Completely obvious. I am off limits. I'm taken. Do not even begin the process. Honoring my wife in conversations with others. How do, I, how do I honor my wife in our marriage when I'm speaking to others? Wives, think about this. How do you honor God's pattern for headship and submission when you're talking with others in public, when you're having conversations? How do you honor the, God's pattern for headship and submission in your conversations about your marriage with other people? Let's think about modesty for a second. Modesty is a natural outworking of this text. How you dress matters. How you dress matters. It's not just for you. What does your appearance communicate to others? Now, this goes for husbands and wives. Typically, in the church, modesty has been only directed at women, right? And the showing of skin or whatever. But this is not just about that, right? Men can dress immodestly just like women can. A man dresses immodestly if he tries to draw undue attention to himself. I often talk to preachers, younger preachers, and say, when you're preaching a sermon, your goal, as far as your your clothes is concerned, is for people not to think about your clothes. You want to wear something in whatever context you're in, and it might mean 
wearing something different here versus there, but you want to wear something where people are not thinking about your clothes, right? Like, consider, what, what if I was up here in a three-piece Armani suit with all the bling that went along with it, and really fancy Rolex and everything like that? You'd be looking at that guy and be like, that, that's a sleazy kind of preacher. I'm not going to trust him, right? But it's not just that way. Like, we, we look at that and we think, oh, yeah, like, they care way too much about dressing up for church. It's not just that way. There, there are other people who have, you know, all the latest brands and their haircut looks like it was styled by a stylist and they're wearing Jordans preaching God's word. And you look at them and think, well, they're really trying hard to get people to notice them instead of God's word, Right? That it's modesty for both men and women. Don't draw undue attention to yourself in the way that you dress. When I was growing up, it always felt like people were saying, wear your best for God on Sundays, right? So if you wear jeans on Sundays, God, God hates that. God looks down on people who wear jeans. That's not what we're talking about, right? That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is dressing in such a way that draws undue attention to yourself, taking glory away from where it should go away from you to God, the Father. It also means, in modesty, and in terms of the outworking of this passage, men are to present themselves like men, and women are to present themselves like women. How we dress in public. Now those things are different from culture to culture and from time to time, like we said, but what we don't do is we don't blur the line between men and women. We honor the beauty of God's creation, and the diversity that he intended. God created men and women as different. And we are to honor that, not to blur the line between them. Think about skin color, right? We don't act like skin color doesn't exist. It does, and it's beautiful. God created different people with different skin colors, and one is not better than the other, amen? But at the same time, we, we honor the diversity and the differences in the way that God created male and female. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. And you read in Genesis there and you understand man is a term for mankind, not just maleness, mankind. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created male and female intentionally in the beginning. He didn't just say we need another person. No, he said we need a man and we need a woman. And they're different. They're gloriously different. And we honor the differences. We highlight the differences. And men lean into being men. Women lean into being women, masculine and feminine, highlighting the beauty of the diversity that God created. The real question is the one we asked earlier. This all comes back to that fundamental question The most fundamental question of your existence. Will you be your own authority or will you submit to God's authority over you? Will you be your own authority or will you submit to God's authority over you? And all that that entails. There are many, many situations, brothers and sisters, where we are called to submit to God's pattern for authority. Church members are called to submit to God's authority given to the elders. Children are called to submit to God's authority given to parents, wives to husbands. God has set up these things. Citizens to governments, right? Will you be your own authority or will you submit to God's authority over you? Jesus is the head of the church. Will you submit to him today? Have you submitted to him today? 
Have you given up your own authority? Have you let Christ become Lord and Master of your life? Because He laid down His life for you. He laid down His life for you. And the beautiful irony of the Kingdom of God, the beautiful irony of it, is that you will never find true happiness and true freedom until you deny yourself and submit to Him as Lord. You'll never find it. Some of you have been looking for happiness everywhere. And you have been disappointed at every turn. How do I know that? Not because I know you so well. It's because that's human beings. God created us in such a way that our hearts are, as Augustine Augustine said in, in the fourth century, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. God created us with hearts like that so that we would be disappointed every time we try to find happiness, every time we try to find satisfaction anywhere else. We would be disappointed. And God says in Acts 17, He did this so that we might reach out for Him and find Him, even though He is not far from each one of us. God wants you to experience the disappointment of searching for happiness in anything else because it will only come through Him. Have you submitted to Jesus as your Lord? Have you given up the authority of your own life? Once you do, you will find yourself asking, why would I ever have resisted this? You can keep your own authority over your life. You can. You can hold on to it. But you need to know it will never bring you happiness. We cannot run our own lives. We will destroy ourselves. There's no happiness there. Do you want to spend an eternity in hell desperately holding on to your own authority over your life to the bitter end? At least I held on to my own authority. At least I'm in control all the way to hell. Why not just give it up? Give it up to the Lord. Give Him control of your life. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We're going to spend just a few moments now in silent prayer. Every single one of us. I'm asking every one of us in here to respond silently in prayer to God to what He has just laid on your heart. It's a time of response. And the way that God pierced our hearts with His Word just now might be different for every single one of us. And so we want to give time for everyone to respond to the Lord in prayer After a few moments of silent prayer, we take whatever God laid on us to God and we respond to Him. And we'll come back, we'll have a time of public response for anyone who needs to respond in that way. So let's pray.